All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh God, as we look into the mirror of your holy commandments, we ask that you strip us of all self-righteousness. Help us to see ourselves inside and out as we are. And when we have seen enough, give us a look and teach us to look at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Oh, my audio is weird. Let me see what's going on here. What about this? Does it sound better? Not sure. Well, let me know if it, okay, if it, uh, if it gets messed up, just let me know. <laughs> um, okay, so we're going to start. <clears throat> and I had to change the schedule a bit. I wrote tentative schedule on the original because I knew this was going to happen where I would have to change things up a bit. Um, so what I've done is we've basically added one other week and we're going to cover the law. I realize we can't cover the law completely in one class. So we'll do it in two parts, part one and two. So I want to begin with the law and the gospel and just give an introduction here. Um, So remember in the first class, I said that all of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament is God's word. And that was in the, uh, the first lesson. All of scripture is uh, the same in this sense. In this very sense, it's the same, that it is God's word. So with that being said, we find that God speaks to us. When you read the Bible, God speaks to us in two major different ways, two different ways here. Um, The first way is the law. God tells us what is expected of us. So you'll open the Bible and you'll read certain things and you'll hear that God expects you to do something. Or he tells you to do something, what you need to do, what you need to not do. Um, That if you don't comply with what he says, then you're going to be punished and there will be consequences. And uh, when you open the Bible, you're going to find passages that speak that way. On the other hand, you're going to find passages that tells us something different, that tell us something different. And this is called the gospel. And these are passages that tell us what we should expect of God. Uh, what God does for us, that he has forgiven all of our sins, that he gives us salvation, that he tells us he's not angry and that he's going to have mercy upon us. So the law, you see this direction of what you owe God. So it's going upward. The gospel is downward. It's God to us. So that's the difference. And you're going to see this in in the Bible. Now, if you don't know the distinction here, or you don't know what to call this, it's going to seem like a contradiction. If you don't know the distinction between law and gospel, you're going to think that God is contradicting himself, uh, that the Bible then would remain a closed book to you. Because to distinguish between the law and the gospel is, is the most basic and fundamental understanding needed to read the Bible. And yet at the same time, it's the most difficult art 
And the most difficult thing to do is to read the Bible rightly. And to do that, you have to know the distinction between law and gospel. So to, to resolve this, God speaks in both ways, not because he's contradicting himself, but because he has different purposes for speaking these words to us, that the, the goal of them is different. And we'll talk about that. Now, we say as Lutherans, this is very big for us, the distinction between law and gospel. We don't commingle them or mix them up. We don't say that God's love depends upon our love for him um, or that uh, we're, we're not... This is a confusion of law and gospel, so I won't get into too many examples here. But I do want to give you some biblical proofs for this, things that to, to show you that this isn't imposed on the scriptures, rather it's something that's drawn out of the Bible. Uh, the first text is Romans 3.21, and it says this, I'll just read it to you. It says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and this righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So so if you pay attention here, um, Romans 3 is telling us that there's two sources of righteousness, two ways you can get righteousness. The first way is a righteousness that comes through the law, that is through doing things, that's works. The second way is that there's a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's by believing. So that's the the final part. Uh, And this righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's two sources of righteousness. Um, That's not the only text. There's a number of others. I'll give you one other uh, example. Galatians 2, 16. And it says... We know that a person is not justified. We're going to talk about, we're going to have a whole class on justification itself, uh, I think in two or three uh, classes from now. But simply put, justification means that God looks at you and says you are good in his sight. Okay, so we know that a person is not justified, not good in God's sight by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, you'll have to kind of take my word on this, that this is, there's many more passages that talk about this. In fact, what you can do is if you want, take your Bible, open up to Galatians 3 uh, and 4, chapters three and four, just read, actually just read of all of Galatians. And you'll see that Paul is explicitly teaching that the substance of the Bible can be distinguished in these two, in these two categories, in these two words, the law and the gospel. Okay. So again, we're going to talk about the law. Now, this is the realm of what you are to do for God from our direction to him. We will talk about the gospel. Don't give up and don't say, hey, uh, this sounds legalistic or this sounds really mean um, because the gospel is coming. And I will talk about that. But there, there's a lot to be said on the law and that you have to understand the law first before you can understand the gospel. Uh, there's no need for a savior if you don't understand that you need a savior. 
Um, okay, so let's get into the law in general. <clears throat> now, you might be asking a question then. Uh, if it's true that the law doesn't save us and that the gospel does save us, then why in the world am I spending two entire lessons on teaching you the law? Um, well, I'll give you two reasons why. The first is this, because I want to teach you the full meaning of the Ten Commandments, not just the surface level or basic reading of the Ten Commandments or the assumed meaning of the Ten Commandments. I want to tell you entirely what the commandment entails. Just for, for instance, take the fifth commandment. Um, you would read that and say, you shall not murder. Okay. Uh, now, the basic reading is to say, well, just don't kill anybody. Uh, but you'll see in the scriptures that this also includes hurting or harming people. Uh, you, you can't simply say, well, when you read the fifth commandment, say, well, I, I'm not going to kill somebody, but what I can do is beat them up to a point uh, before they die, right? Just take them, uh, beat them up so badly, and then I didn't kill them. I didn't murder. So therefore, I'm free. No, you can't. You can't do that. That's not what the scriptures say. So it's everything that leads up to murder or that is in the realm of murder uh, that the scriptures even reveal to us even anger and hatred belong in this commandment. And then the opposite of the commandment, if, if it's wrong to kill somebody, to murder somebody, that is to kill them unjustly, uh, then what would the opposite of that be? The opposite of that would be to take care of somebody. So to really keep that commandment, it's not just um, not murdering people. It's also taking care of their body, uh, supporting them in this body and life in every physical need. So that's what I want to go, go do through, this, through all of the Ten Commandments is tell you the full meaning and not just take a really basic uh, understanding of it and to say, well, you shouldn't commit adultery. What does that mean? Well, don't commit adultery. There's, there's more to it. There's more to each commandment. And it's played out and expanded throughout all of the scriptures. So that's the first reason I'm spending all this time on the law. The second reason uh, is to tell you the purpose of the law. Because I want to teach you the, the purpose of the law, what the end goal of the law is, what it is accomplishing when you hear it. <clears throat> There's a common misconception when people think of the Ten Commandments. And the idea is this. People will say, well, God wouldn't command us to do something that we can't do. So if God tells us the Ten Commandments, so if God commands us to do something, then that must mean we're fully capable of doing it. So if he gives the Ten Commandments, then that means we should be able to keep them. Uh, there was a a heretic by the name of Marcion. Uh, they, the, the group was called the Marcionites. And this is what he taught. And this is what they believe. God is not going to tell you to do something that you can't do. Uh, I want to tell you the reality here. <clears throat> I want to show you that that is not God's purpose in giving us the Ten Commandments uh, or the law. The reason he gave us the Ten Commandments is precisely to show us, not that we are capable of keeping them, but to show us that we're incapable of keeping his law. And it sounds backwards, but I, I, I'll give you an analogy here. 
take, for example, say there's uh, some, you have a child who's in uh, playing football and he's in his senior year and they make it to states or they're, you know, in the semifinals and then your son gets tackled and he breaks his collarbone, right? Uh, If you do that, you're basically done, right? You can't really do anything uh, on the football field at that point. So he breaks his collarbone, um, but it's his senior year. This is the last time he's going to play. They just made, they won the game. They're going to States and he really wants to play in the final game. Okay. So this football player, uh, your son breaks his uh, collarbone. He goes to the doctor. You take him there and you say, oh, it's pretty bad. It's bruised. Uh, The doctor comes back with an x-ray and says, you can't play. The season's over. You got to sit out the last game, and then your the the kid says, "Well, no, I can play. I'm just going to take a bunch of Advil, and I can play. It'll be fine. Um, I I have to play this game. I can do it. I promise." And he tells he promises everyone. So the doctor says, "Okay, fine. Um, here's what you do. Just do a few things for me, and I I'll clear you to play. So just do this with your arm, just that." Um, and then the kid tries it and he's in pain and fo- he can't do it, right? Because his body is falling apart. And then the doctor says, okay, now go like this. Push your hands together. Nope, I can't do it. All right, now do a jumping jack. No. Uh, all right, now bend over backwards or touch your toes or this. And the kid finds he can't do this, any of these things. Um, <clears throat> now, let me ask you, did the doctor know that the kid wouldn't be able to do those simple movements that anybody could do before he did them? And the answer is yes, he knew it. Then why did he tell him to do it? Well, it was in this example to convince the kid that his collarbone was broken. And so that the kid learns that he actually needs help, that he needs treatment, he needs surgery, he needs medicine, he needs so on and so forth. So this is kind of how it is with the law and the Ten Commandments. God gave us the law so that we would know how poor and miserable our condition is. So that we would know that we are really, truly broken and that we can't even do these simple things that anybody should be able to do. Um, That by realizing that we would know we need help, we need a savior. Most people don't feel sinful. They think they're fine. And so they conclude, well, if I don't feel sinful, I don't feel guilty, I don't feel like I need Jesus to die for me, then, then I don't. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need a savior. I don't need salvation. I don't need any of this because I'm a good person or I'm basically good or I'm a better person at least than those people, right? This is the problem. The main purpose of the Ten Commandments is to show you that you indeed are broken to such a degree that you need a savior, that you can't even do the basic, simple things of the Ten Commandments. I'll get into this a little bit later too. Um, I want to give a fair warning here to all of you that as we study the Ten Commandments, I want you to realize that I'm going to be talking about what the commandments forbid and tell us to do and talking about very certain sins, very certain behaviors, habits, 
patterns of thinking and living and so on and so forth. And as you hear this, you're probably going to get offended um, or even angry or ashamed or defensive. Uh, You may even realize that you're guilty of some of these things. And I want you to realize that this is normal. (laughs) You, You shouldn't be surprised by this. In fact, that is actually the point of the Ten Commandments. Think of it this way. If I, if I say the Ten Commandments and you say, ouch, that, that kind of hits me uh, where it hurts. It hits me, my heart and I feel guilty of this. Um, think of it this way. There's a pack of dogs and then I take a rock and I just throw it into the pack of dogs. Now, the one that yelps is what? The one that got hit. <laughs> So the, think of it in the same way. Here's, here's what the Ten Commandments I'm not calling anybody out. I don't know what's going on in your life or whatever it is. But I'm, we're going to go through all of these Ten Commandments. And at one point or another, one of these commandments or one part or more than one or all of them are going to hit you. And you're going to feel the sting of that and say, oh, man, this is I, I'm ashamed. This hurts. That's that's me. I, that's what God says, and this is what I'm doing. They line up, and now this is a problem. Um, remember that this is uh, completely normal. <laughs> this is what should be happening. In fact, if that doesn't happen, then I don't, either you're not listening or you think very, very highly of yourself and don't realize how sinful you are, that, that you indeed are, are guilty of these things. So with that being said, my request, my only request is this, don't get angry with me um, because not that I don't want enemies. I'm, I'm sure I have a lot of enemies without knowing it. Uh, but the reason I don't want you to get angry with me is because if you get angry with me, then you think that it's coming from me and that I'm the problem or I'm the one saying this. And so the solution in your mind is going to be, well, let me just find a pastor who doesn't say these things. Well, let me go to a church that doesn't talk about these things. But I want you to realize that this is from God. This is from the scriptures. Because if you realize that this is what God's word says, then you're not going to try and solve your guilt by running away to another pastor or another church. But you're going to solve your guilt by running to Jesus and pleading for his forgiveness and saying, I got hit. And I have no place to go because this is God's word, which is above all people. And all men stand condemned before God. We are all equally guilty of something before the eyes of God. And so I have no place to go. So I'm going to go to Jesus. And if he gives me the forgiveness of sins, then that's what I claim. That's what I want. Okay, that's my point is, again, I don't care if people are angry with me. But the point is, it's not going to help if you're angry with me because that doesn't solve the problem. What solves the problem is Christ. So just just keep that in mind. That's my my plea. And then hold on as we go through this lesson, the next lesson, uh, until we get to the gospel. And I want you to hear what the consolation and the comfort is there. So um, my biggest uh, request is don't give up if you feel guilty here. Don't just sign off if that's the case. Okay. Um, that's all kind of a primer here to the law. <clears throat> I want to talk about the two sources of the law in the, I think it was the second class we talked about, um, the conscience or I th- 
no, it was the first, the first class. We talked about the conscience. Um, I don't know now. Anyway, it's in one of those classes. Uh, we talked about that God has written his law in our heart. Uh, Romans 2.15 says that the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. That's humanity, people. In other words, the conscience is the voice in our heart and our mind that tells us that what we're doing is wrong. So it's the feeling of guilt you get when you do bad things. And it's the feeling of good when you do good things. For example, if you lie to your spouse, if you lie to your husband or your wife, um, and they start questioning you <laughs> and saying, wait, this story is not adding up. This doesn't make sense. Okay, tell me more, more, more. And then you start to get defensive and you feel this knot in your stomach like, oh no, I'm going to get caught. I'm lying. And nobody's telling you to feel that way. Nobody's taught you to feel this way. It's just, it's natural. This happens with my son. He's four years old. He lies. He'll start lying to us and he feels bad. And I ask him, I'm like, um, did you feel bad when you, when you, tried to hide this. And he's like, yeah, like that's your conscience. I, I teach him. Um, so this is the thing. So if you're lying, you have this guilt and shame in you and it's universal. Everybody feels this naturally. You don't have to teach it. it, it it's a thing. Um, or on the other hand, if you feed a homeless person, right? Or you do, or you help somebody out in your family or you give them money to get them out of a situation or you clean someone's home, then you feel what? You feel this happy and loving feeling in you and you're kind of proud. That's a good thing. That's your conscience telling you something good. So um, the problem is though with our conscience is that we fell into sin and that the law is now blurry in our eyes. Um, So it's like trying to read a book without your glasses if you need glasses. so you can't really quite tell what it is. It's very blurry. Uh, you can kind of make out the vague idea, but you can't really get into the specifics or looking for something in your house without glasses. Uh, so for this reason, God gave the Ten Commandments. So the first source of the law is the conscience. The second source is the Ten Commandments. And we see this in Exodus thirty-one eighteen, where it says, God gave to Moses when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tables of the testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Uh, We see this in Exodus 20, 19 and 20, when God gives the 10 commandments. And this is like getting the right pair of glasses so that you can see very clearly what the law is, what the conscience, what, what God expects of you. So you kind of know to, uh, to some degree in your heart what God expects of you, but it's not definite or not very clear. When you open the scriptures, read the law, then you can see clearly and say, that is what God expects of me. Um, now I know what, what, the, what the Lord expects. Uh, the, the conscience is reliable to a certain degree, but it's not entirely reliable because your conscience can be wrong and unclear and your conscience can even become numb. 
after some time, if you continue to sin against it so often, if you do the wrong thing. Uh, we talked about this, I think it was the last class, how sometimes serial killers uh, will do something, have a certain habit or behavior that's repeated their whole life from, from youth and they no longer feel bad, right? So that things start with very uh, kind of seemingly innocent behavior and they don't repent of it or they don't check themselves on that and it grows into more and more gross and evil things. Um, because of that, we all have some habit in our life that we've repeatedly worked on against and we feel numb to it. Uh, when at first we felt bad and now we no longer feel bad about this. So this is the problem of, or the limits of the conscience. Okay, so what is the summary of the Ten Commandments? Well, uh, Exodus 20, uh, when it lists the Ten Commandments, we hear you shall and you shall not. You shall do this, you shall do this, you shall not do this, you shall not do this. Uh, so it's about doing and not doing. That's the first way we can summarize the commandments. But the second um, is being. So first is about doing and second is about being. First is about what you do. Second is about who you are as a person. So Leviticus 19.2, God says, Be holy, that is without sin, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I'm without sin. Uh, Matthew, this is repeated also in the New Testament, Matthew 5.48, out of the lips of Jesus. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, the, the, the worldly standard that we imagine to get into heaven is this, is that we simply have to be good enough or better. Uh, and the, the standard is that there's all these bad people around me and as long as I'm better than one of these bad people, then I'm good enough to make it into heaven. So people will say, well, I'm no Mother Teresa, right? I'm not the best here. I'm not the Pope, but I'm not a murderer. So yeah, obviously murderers deserve to go to hell and Mother Teresa. Now I'm not the best, I'm not the worst. I'm somewhere in between and I'm more towards the top than I am <laughs> down, down at the bottom here. So this is the standard that we have, that as long as I'm better than the person next to me, I'm good enough to go to heaven. So you'll, you know, you'll see these videos or hear of these conversations where somebody says, if you were to die tonight, uh, would you go to heaven? And they say, well, I think so. I hope so. I'm a good person. I think I'm a good person. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't get drunk. I haven't murdered anybody. So do you see what they're doing? They're immediately comparing themselves to another. The problem with this approach is that uh, it's like taking a crooked ruler to measure another crooked ruler <laughs> and saying, well, this one's straighter than that one. Well, you, you need the actual ruler. What, what is straight? Or you need the, 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 the right measurement. God's standard of perfection or God's standard of getting to heaven is perfection. The standard is a pure heart. And that means that how many sins would disqualify you from eternal life? One, uh, even one impure thought or desire already blows it. Because there's no middle ground between perfect and imperfect, right? 
Either something is perfect, that's what the definition is, it means in all its part, or even one little blemish means it's imperfect, and now it's in a different category. Either you're holy or you are sinful. Um, and, and we say, well, ah, that's, that's kind of, that, that doesn't really seem fair. But let me give you another analogy here. I think I have a lot of analogies, um, and I hope they're helpful and not harmful. But let me say you're thirsty, and I give you a glass of water. It's pure, clean, purified water. And I put it before you. I say, would you drink this? Yeah, of course. No, no question. Now, what if I say, well, hold on. Let me just put one drop of, <laughs> one drop of urine in it. Just one drop. It's small. Um, or one tiny drop of sewer water. That's all. Would you still drink it? No, that's disgusting. Uh, because that one drop of filth already contaminates the rest of it. So th- this is then the problem. I mean, you can argue and say, well, 99.9% of it is good. You only put one little drop in it. So you, it's still good water. No, uh, the same thing happens with our heart. Uh, one drop of sin or guilt now infects the entire body. And now it is entirely unacceptable to God. If you wouldn't accept a, a, a glass of water with one tiny drop of bacteria or a virus in it, then why do you think that God should accept you into heaven if you have multiple sins, which are much worse than filth or much worse than bacteria, much worse than these things? So th- this is the standard. <clears throat> And that's why we we go back to the text, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the law. Okay. Uh, A couple other things. I want to tell you that the law is reasonable. Uh, Many people would respond and say, look, well, God is being unreasonable here because the standard is too high. Uh, God needs to, in fact, if he wants people in heaven, to lower his standard. But the Ten Commandments aren't unreasonable. They're, in fact, reasonable. And it is, in fact, right for God to expect those things from us. In fact, it is completely right and holy and just for God to expect us to be and live as he created us to be. Uh, So um, I want to tell you that, yeah, um, imagine this. Imagine you go to a dealership and buy a car and you test out the car and it's working well, you, you get into it, you drive it well, it, the engine is there, you, you know, it's, it's all working well. And then you buy the car and they deliver it to your home, but on the way home, that truck gets into an accident and your car is totaled, right? It's just balled up. Um, but they still deliver the car anyway and they drop it off at your house and all you see is this big crumbled mess. <laughs> and then you walk out there and you call the company and you say, yeah, um, this isn't going to work. This car is a mess. I can't drive it. And then the dealer says, well, technically, this is the car you bought. <laughs> it's, it's the same exact car. And you say, yeah, but I can't even open the door or get into it. I can't even get inside. The car is useless to me. And he says, well, I think you're expecting too much. Uh, you need to realize that, that there's going to be a few bumps and bruises on the road, scrapes on the road in, during transportation. So 
you can't expect the car to be perfect, right? So who's in the right here? Um, is the dealer in the right or the buyer? <laughs> is it reasonable for the owner to say, I want the car to be exactly the car that I bought and I don't want this mess. I don't want this, uh, uh, this totaled car. Um, I can't even open the door. Is it reasonable for the man who bought the car to want a car that the door opens and that he can get in and drive? Yeah, that's reasonable. I, that's what you paid for. Okay, <clears throat> well, the man who bought the car doesn't need to lower his standards and say, well, yeah, technically this is what I got myself into, so I got to be happy with this. No, the man who sold in the car is the one who needs to, 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 to improve and change the situation. Okay, the point here is that it's not God who needs to lower his standard for us. It's that we need, we need to raise our standard to him. The fact that the car was totaled on the way, right? In this analogy, it's our fault uh, and it's not the buyer's fault. This shows us, so if, if the expectation is just the car, I want the car to run like a car is supposed to run and it doesn't run that way because it was destroyed. Well, uh, then the problem is on the one who destroyed it. Well, the same thing for God. If God wants our bodies to run and to be uh, just the way he, uh, he bought them, the way, they, the way he wanted them, then, and they can't do that, we can't blame him for the mistake. We can't say, well, well you're expecting too much of me. Uh, so this shows us not that God has a standard that's super high, it just shows us that we've fallen so far and that the standard that was reasonable is now unreasonable. And it's not unreasonable because God is just being a tyrant. It's unreasonable, it's unreasonable because we are so damaged. Okay, uh, <clears throat> the other thing I wanna tell you is that the law is good. So the law commands good things. Um, it's wrong of us to think that the law of God is bad since it can't save us. It's not that the law of God is bad, it's that we're bad. The law of God is good even if we can't achieve it. So the, the misconception is to think that God in the Ten Commandments is telling us to do like arbitrary things. Like he's just give like he just barges into into the home and just gives us a list of ridiculous demands and things to do, uh, kind of like just obstacles and challenges, right? Um, for, for example, I think some of you were in the military and maybe at one point they told you to clean the toilet with a toothbrush. So, well, what's the point of that? Just give me the regular brush and I'll clean it. But why, why do I have to do it with a toothbrush? Now, and, and people then say, well, this is kind of what God is doing. You know, he's, he's just giving us ridiculous demands and just making us, he's a tyrant. He wants us to do these things because uh, he, he gets some pleasure out of this cruelty. Th this, this is wrong. That's the wrong way to view it. Um, what God is asking us to do is not arbitrary, but they are essential and good and holy things. He's, what he's asking us to do is completely reasonable. Um, the law protects also good things. So <clears throat> I want you to think of the 10 commandments this way. 
before we get into them, is to think of them as like a wall or a fence uh, or, or maybe like a safe that's protecting something that's inside of it. So to say that there's behind every commandment a treasure or something that's really precious and valuable. And what God has done is with each commandment is he puts up a wall or he puts it into a safe. And this safe is the commandment. And that's surrounding something very, very precious and valuable. For, for example, uh, take, for instance, the sixth commandment. You shall not uh, commit adultery. Well, yes, we take it at face value. Don't commit adultery. Um, but what is God protecting? What's behind that? Why doesn't he want us to commit adultery? That's, that's the question, right? So why doesn't he want us to murder? Why doesn't he want us to steal? Why doesn't he want us to dishonor our parents? So on and so forth. Well, why doesn't he want us to commit adultery? Well, what's behind that? Well, what's behind it is marriage. He's saying there's something precious and holy here, and that is marriage. That is a union of a husband and a wife uh, together for life. And what I've done is I've put this protection, this barbed wire around it to say, don't trespass. Don't, don't break into this and don't try and break out of this. So that's what I'm hoping to do here with the Ten Commandments is to show you with each commandment that there's something really beautiful beneath each one. And it's not just arbitrary. It's not just God telling us to jump through a hoop. He's saying there's something really important here. And I want you to realize that the thing I'm telling you about is important and that I've put a, a wall around it. Okay. Um, let me pause here and see if there are any questions. No, no questions. All right. If there are questions, uh, feel free to stop me and, and let me know or type something in the chat. Um, now I want to get into, uh, again, we're still doing an overview of the law in general, everything together, but I want to talk about, uh, three kinds of law in the Bible. You'll open it up and you'll see three different kinds or types of the law. Uh, the first is the political or civil law. The second is the ceremonial law. And a third is the moral law. So, for example, uh, the political law. These are laws in the Bible that you'll read something in, in the Old Testament. And that these laws are particular to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So you'll see things about civil order or inheritance laws. If uh, the father dies, who inherits what he has how it's distributed, how people are married, these sort of things, uh, penal laws, health laws, so on and so forth. So these laws, the civil and political laws are bound to a specific time and place and people. So it would be like here in the United States, we drive on the right side of the road, right? Um, in England, you drive on the other side of the road. <laughs> um, and, uh, so, so this is a, this is a difference. Uh, this is the political that our government has decided this, and this is what we're going to do. And so it varies from region to region. 
Okay, well, you're going to find laws like this in the Bible that are particular to the politics or the government of the Old Testament. Okay, the second kind of law is the ceremonial law. And these are laws regarding religious feasts, uh, festivals, ceremonies, the sacrificial system, what kind of bird to sacrifice, what kind of animal to sacrifice, what a bull, how you sacrifice a bull, a goat, a lamb, uh, when the day of atonement is supposed to be, uh, things on circumcision, uh, dietary laws, you can't eat shellfish, you can't eat uh, you know, all these sorts of things. These are all restrictions that you're going to find also in the Old Testament. And this too is bound to a specific place and time and people in the Old Testament. Um, and then you're going to find moral laws. And these are laws that are about universal human behavior and conduct that's binding for all people at all times and in all places. And this law is the same through all time. In fact, for all eternity, all of eternity. That it's not just a law that we keep in the Old Testament, but one that we keep in the New Testament even now. In fact, these are laws that we will gladly and joyfully keep in the life to come. So that you, you don't want to think of uh, heaven or the resurrection as lawlessness. Like once we get, once we're resurrected or in heaven, then, you know, we're, we're, we're just getting drunk and there's promiscuity and murder, whatever it is. No, no, no. Those laws will be continued. And in fact, we're not even going to have to fight against those laws or try to do them. We will by nature gladly do them and we're going to delight in them. In fact, the best sort of world would be one where everybody kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, right? Think about it. Uh, you take the 10th command, nobody would covet. Nobody would be discontent. Um, the, the ninth and 10th uh, command, the eighth command, nobody would lie. Everybody would tell the truth. I mean, it would be awesome to watch the news if nobody lied. <laughs> it would be awesome to, to have a government that never lied. Any politician, that, a, a lawyer that never lied. Um, seventh commandment, nobody would steal. You don't have to have locks on your doors. You don't have to have a safe you can leave your stuff out in the open. There, there, you wouldn't have to have a door on, on, in, in your home. Um, the sixth commandment, uh, you, you shall not commit adultery. Everyone would be faithful in their marriage. Every marriage would be happy and joyful and they would be content in their marriage. Nobody would uh, cheat on another person or be unfaithful to another person or, or any of these things. Fifth commandment, there'd be no murder at all. Everyone would be happy. They'd be helping each other. Nobody would be beating each other up or there wouldn't be any bad things. Uh, fourth commandment, everyone would honor the authorities, honor their father and their mother. Uh, children would be perfectly obedient in church. You say uh, one thing and they would never do it. They would never do the sin again. They wouldn't talk back at all. And parents would be perfectly happy with their kids and their kids would be happy with their parents. Third commandment, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Everybody would go to church. Everybody. They would all come to church. The churches would be full. We'd have to build massive, massive sanctuaries just to hold everybody. Nobody would stay home on a Sunday. A second commandment, everybody would pray together and speak well. Uh, and the first commandment, everybody would be Christian. 
We'd all be in the same religion. There wouldn't be divisions. There wouldn't be uh, different sects or cults or different uh, religions that, that terrorize others. We would be one, right? So if everybody te- kept the Ten Commandments, it would be wonderful. Well, okay, of these three kinds of law, the political, the ceremonial, and the moral, well, the Ten Commandments are the moral law. That's the third type. So we're not talking about something that expires. We're talking about something that endures forever. Now, I, the reason I'm telling you this is because there's a common um, misconception and maybe argument against Christians to say, well, you Christians are hypocrites because you expect everybody to follow these 10 commandments, but you don't even follow what the Bible says because the Bible says don't eat shellfish. And what do you do? You go to Red Lobster and you're a hypocrite, right? You eat uh, oysters and you eat uh, crab and all these things. Uh, but then you're also telling us that we can't have abortions, that we can't, you know, that homosexuality is a sin. That's, you know, th- that's a discrepancy and you guys are hypocrites. Well, that's a very, that's a huge oversimplification and that's a failure to distinguish that there are different laws. There are different kinds of laws in the Bible um, and that the moral law is binding for all people. We all stand condemned under that where the ceremonial law has passed away. There's a reason we don't keep, we haven't kept uh, sacrificing lambs at, on an altar. There's a reason that circumcision isn't mandatory for, for all people or that, um, that we don't follow this, that we don't have to wear certain clothing nowadays as we did in the Old Testament. Okay, so anyway, that's just to help you categorize and understand that there is a distinction here. Um, another thing is that the order of the t- commandments, so we're getting close to starting them, um, now that we're towards the end of the class, we're getting to the beginning of the commandments, but uh, the order of the commandments is important. They might seem random to you, but I want to show you as we go through them that there's this particular structure and order for all 10 commandments. Um, that means that the first commandment then is the most important commandment. And the other nine commandments are a fleshing out or an unpacking of the first commandment. It's an, it's an expansion on the first commandment. So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, before my face. If you can keep that commandment perfectly, then you can keep the other nine. And if you can't keep any of the other nine, then it's because you've broken the first commandment. Uh, That is, if you really feared and loved and trusted in God above all things, then you wouldn't break the rest of the commandments. For example, uh, stealing. Um, Why do people steal? Is because they they don't think they're going to have enough for this body and life. And so they steal because they think they're going to be in need and lack. Well, if you kept the first commandment and realized that God would provide that he'll provide for your every body, uh, every need of body, um, then you wouldn't steal because you would trust God to provide it. <laughs> um, or, or the fifth command, you wouldn't murder people because you would trust that vengeance is the Lord's and you wouldn't take it into your own hands, right? So the point is that if you really keep the first commandment, then you've kept them all, which means the first commandment is the most important one. I also want to show you that there's a certain division of the Ten Commandments that we have. Uh, 
you would imagine that with two tables of the law, we separate the commandments as the first five and the last five. That's even, that's mathematical. But the way we theologically divide the commandments is according to what the subject is of those commandments. So we would divide them as the first three on one table and the last seven on another. That the commandments one through three talk about your relationship with God, what you owe God. That is, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, uh, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Those three are your relationship with God. The last seven, commandments four through 10, are about your relationship with other people, what you owe other people. So that the fourth commandment, it begins, uh, honor your father and mother. Already, this is another person. Uh, Fifth commandment, um, you shall not murder. Well, you need another person in order to murder. Um, the, the, The sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. You need another person. This regards other people. Uh, the eighth commandment, you shall, or sorry, the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. From who? From another person. The eighth commandment, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. It's against another person. The ninth and tenth commandment, you shall not cover your neighbor's house or uh, his manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Again, so the last seven commandments enters into the realm of the other. So the first three are a vertical realm between me and God, and the last seven are horizontal, right? So you can view it like a upside down T or something. Um, And we get this distinction from Matthew 22. I want to show this to you, that this is, this is actually, this distinction is from Jesus himself. Matthew 22 starting at verse 37 to verse 40. Um, Oops, let me take this out. Okay, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, this is an exchange that Jesus has with others, they gathered together, the Pharisees, and one of them, a lawyer, Uh, This is someone who studies the scriptures. Whenever you see lawyer in the scriptures, this is, it's talking about somebody who knows the Torah, the the law of Moses. He asked Jesus a question to test him. So it's not genuine. He's trying to trap him. And he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, again, there's 613 different laws uh, that the Pharisees had. You can't, um, I mean, some ridiculous things like you, like on the Sabbath, you can't um, even spit on the ground because if you spit on the ground, it might be watering plants and that's considered work. I mean, th- that's genuinely uh, some of the laws in these things uh, that you can't be holding something at sundown that if you did, then uh, on Friday and it, and it was sundown um, or the, the sunset, then you would be doing work. So you have to drop it before the sun goes down. I mean, all these sort of things. So he's saying out of all these laws, the 613 laws, well, which is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
and a second is like it. You shall, now the guy only asked for one commandment and Jesus gives him two. He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, that is all of the 10 commandments and all of the prophets, all of the scriptures can be boiled down and summarized into these two things, which are, you shall love the Lord your God. Um, so you say, this is about God and neighbor. Uh, and then you say, well, well, can we distill this even more? Can we summarize it even more? Yes, we can. Because you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor. So we would say, how do you summarize the Ten Commandments in a word? Well, in one word, the, the Ten Commandments are love. That is, that is the summary of all of the commandments, loving God and then loving your neighbor. Um, <clears throat> okay, let me... Uh, okay, so let's get into the first commandment. And I want to show you this. There's, there's quite a lot to say here, and I think we might be able to get through it all. Um, the first commandment is found in Exodus 20, verse 3. And it says, you shall have no other gods before me. In Hebrew, it's very literal. It says, you shall have no other gods before my face. Don't even bring them before me. <laughs> um, and if God is omnipresent, he's in all places, then you should have these gods at no time, no other time. Because you're always living before his face. He's always there. Uh, this is what we would call the first commandment. We could define this as idolatry. This commandment prohibits idolatry. That is treating anything else as if it were God. Now, what I like to do is I like to, you know, distinguish here this sort of idolatry into two forms. That there's an explicit idolatry and there's an implicit sort of idolatry. There's an explicit way you can break the first commandment and there's an implicit way to break the first commandment. So an explicit idolatry would look like creating a God, inventing a God with a name, ascribing it a certain name, a certain personality, a set of expectations, and then praying to that God and sacrificing to it, whether it's Thor or Zeus or Hermes or something like this. Um, then to, th that would be like a, a, a certain religion to say, well, this is the name of that God, Moloch, and I'm going to worship this God. So that's very explicit. Uh, I want to show you John chapter 5, verse 23. Um, hmm. Okay, John five twenty three. And, <clears throat> okay, so, so Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says that, that all may honor the son. Oh, no, this is a different context. Never mind. Um, well, he says uh, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. So even as or just as 
That's important. I want you to keep that in mind. Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passed from, but has passed from death to life. Okay. <clears throat> the, the point of that text, the reason I showed that to you, is because Jesus himself says that anyone who does not worship Jesus as God does not worship the one true God. He ties these two things together. That, that if you want to worship God, the one who sent me, then you worship me because I am God. Again, we're going to talk about this when we get to the person of Christ and, and what that union is. Um, now, some sort of explicit idolatry, uh, here are just a few examples of that, that there are tribes and religions that worship the sun, like the S-U-N, the sun, or, or a golden statue, or a pole, or their ancestors, things like this. Um, that is idolatry. That's breaking the first commandment. This also includes things like Islam. Uh, they worship Allah. They don't worship Jesus. They recognize Jesus. They say that he's a prophet. He's a great teacher. But they don't say that he is God because they don't worship God at, or Jesus as God, even as the Father. So they make a distinction and they say, well, there's God and then there's Jesus and they're two different things. But Jesus is God. So this is going back to the first lesson we had. Again, we'll talk about it more in detail. But Islam worships a different God. Um, a lot of people will say that, uh, you know, well, we all worship the same God. We're all part, we're, we all just have different paths to that same God. Not, that's not what Jesus says. That's not the way he speaks. He says, if you don't worship the son, even more, Jesus says, I, uh, um, I, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So that the only way you can worship the Father rightly, worship God rightly, is by worshiping the Son rightly. Okay, that includes Islam, Judaism. Uh, the Jews fall into this category of idolatry precisely because they reject the Son, the divinity of Christ. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they call themselves Christian and it deceives a lot of people, but the Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christian because they don't worship Jesus as God. Uh, again, um, we'll talk about this uh, in, I think, lesson six or seven here. Um, the, the, that they view, the Jehovah's Witnesses view Jesus as a creation of God, but not God himself. Um, okay, the Mormons fall into this as well. Uh, the Mormons say that, uh, that Elohim, God, uh, gave... Um, you know, impregnated the Virgin Mary and that Jesus is one of the first uh, creations of, of this God, um, of, of this union. Uh, they have a very different definition. They say that Jesus came from the planet Kolob. Um, the Mormons say that they're Christian, but they're not. They're very different. Uh, they're, they're, it's a different religion. Uh, this also includes the Masonic Lodge. This includes the Freemasons. In our church, if somebody says that they are a Freemason or belong to the lodge, I would have to say you have to choose whether you're going to be a part of 
our church or theirs because it's a very it's a different religion. Uh, Hinduism is um, it's uh, they have many many gods. Um, pantheism they have many many different thousands of gods. Scientology.